First, I should repeat happy Father's Day to the number of fathers who are here. I uh, feared that there would be a bunch of people on the golf course, but the, God was good to us in giving us rain, uh, and it's good to be here. Um, if you haven't met yet, I'm Andrew Ziegler. I'm a member here. It's a privilege to be able to preach this passage. It's a short passage, but I think it's a really important one with a very weighty question. The passage asks and then goes about answering the question, how do you know that you've known him? How do you know that you've known Jesus? John wants to answer that question tonight. And some of us might pose the question initially a little bit differently. Our first question might be something like, you know, is there any God up there at all? But that's not what John does. That's not where he starts. And sometimes I think it's important to remember that the pressing nature of that kind of question to us in our culture is a bit unusual. Historically and geographically, that's not where most of the questioning has been. That's not where all the action lies. Historically, the question hasn't been, is there a God? But what's that God, or maybe the gods, like? And second, what do they think of me? Sometimes more ominously, what do they think of me? And John is really answering that second question more. We want to uh, know how we can... um, uh, He's answering not does God exist, but he's saying what uh, what does God think of me? So how do we know? How do I know I know and love God? That's kind of bound up in that first question. How do we know we know God is also how do we know God knows and loves us? The stakes are high. Jesus tells us that knowing him is eternal life. He doesn't say that eternal life is kind of the added bonus that you get if you know God. He says actually knowing God is eternal life. So the question matters. The Apostle John and lived, and this is by way of context, the Apostle John lived and worked with Jesus during his earthly ministry And this is now maybe about 50 years later. And John is writing to a church that's in a bit of crisis right now. They are dealing with this question, how do we know that we know God? And they're dealing with it because there was a contingent within the church that seemed like they were faithful. They seemed to know Jesus, and then they threw it all away. They left, they betrayed the church, they denied Jesus, And now they're going around as false prophets. And that kind of betrayal, when that happens, and maybe you've experienced something like that in your life with friends, though in some ways you'd think that only affects those people who left, but it also functions as something of an anti-testimony. You begin to question, if they could leave when I thought that they were so faithful, is my faith real? Could I do the same thing? Do I really know Jesus? I mean, I think we know that false confessions happen. False repentance happens. In John's day, in our day, talk is cheap. It's important to say that you know Jesus, but that's not the same thing as knowing Jesus. And so that's the question. How can we know? How can we come to confidence that we really have known Jesus? Here's John's answer. 
We know we've come to know him if or when we keep his commandments. So I'm going to focus a lot of our time on that answer. It seems straightforward, and I think it is. I'm going to work on that basic principle in mostly verses 3 and 4, and we'll just briefly touch on verses 5 and 6. What I want to do, though, is explain that a bit and then deal with what I suspect might be some concerns or objections at just hearing that in a straightforward way. Because if I, don't, I think if we don't deal with those, then we are going to hear this verse primarily as burden, as something fearful and not as blessing. Blessing. There are all kinds of other questions that we could get into, but we won't have time to. I mean, this will be, in some ways, an impractical sermon. We're talking about obedience, but we're not going to have all the time to talk about the practical steps that we might actually take to become more obedient, to fight sin. That's an important question, and I'm going to have to let the rest of the uh, First John deal with that. Um, we will touch on that less today. But how can we hear that answer, that we know that we've known Jesus as we obey him? How can we hear that as blessing and not burden? First, what does it mean? I think it means keeping the commandments of Jesus is the pathway to gaining that confidence that you truly do know him, that it's all real, and that you are truly known and loved by him. John says it bluntly, and then he backs up in case we didn't understand, and he says it in the negative. And we need to hear this today just as he was saying it then. If today you say that you know Jesus and you don't keep his commandments, John says you're lying. He says, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. You may even be lying to yourself. I mean, I, those are sobering words. I hope that's not the case. But John's words are sharp and pointed here. And I don't think it's up to me to blunt them. Don't say you know Jesus if you don't keep his commandments. So I'm going to pack, unpack that a bit more. But first, the necessary clarification. Right away, we should be clear, John is not talking about how we become right with God. John hasn't forgotten everything he just wrote in chapter 1. We come to God, we become reconciled to God, not by denying our sins, but by confessing them. We don't come to him boasting about how wonderfully obedient we are. We confess our disobedience. Paul says, and John would agree, it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. So there's no boasting. There's not a bit of works. It's all grace. It's all grace that reconciles you to God. It's all grace as a result of Jesus' death for you that took on your sins. John is not dealing with that. He's asking, what next? How does true faith then show itself after you repent and put your faith in Jesus? How do we come to a confidence that our faith is real? And again, John's answer is that those who know Jesus obey him. By obeying him, we come to grow in our assurance that we know him and we're known and loved by him. 
What do we make of that positive answer, that connection between obedience and knowing? I mean, it's not universally true, right? Uh, I know a bunch of people that I'm not at all inclined to obey. I think the answer is in the relationship here. Obedience leads to assurance that you know Jesus because it's the proper response of the sheep who know their loving shepherd. You might remember Jesus' words from John 10. Jesus says, He is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep, and his sheep hear his voice. They know him, and they follow him. If you think about that metaphor, as sheep follow their shepherd through frightening valleys to water when you're, you're thirsty, you become more and more confident in the shepherd. Sheep begin to trust the shepherd more and more as he guides, as they obey, as they come to see that he cares for them and guides them in paths of blessing. You come to know that you've known Jesus as you hear his words and respond in trusting obedience, and as he then blesses you in response. There's that kind of relational exchange, call and response, a give and take there. He commands, you hear, and you hear in that command, not curse, but blessing. And you follow, and he blesses you. And you come to a greater knowledge, a greater confidence that you're his, that you really, really do know him. And I think the emphasis here is that obedience is itself the pathway. It's the means by which we come to know that we truly are Jesus, uh, God's. It's less about looking to you know, how much obedience you have and staring at your life to figure out how much is there, what kind of evidence am, uh, do I see. I, I think there's that element. But the last part of our passage points to us imitating Jesus. The focus is on actually just going about hearing his voice, responding, and growing in knowledge. So I think that's the general principle. I want us to hear that as good news and also trust that as spiritual guidance for us. I mean, it, it's not uncommon that God can feel distant for the believer. I mean, people classically talk about it as the, the dark night of the soul. But even less dramatically, when he doesn't feel present, when you doubt his love for you, the inclination can be to run the other way or to, to make yourself more distant. John's saying the pathway to coming to a more certain and assured knowledge of his love for you is to hear his word and respond in obedience. As I said, though, I, I fear that when you hear that, all that talk about obedience, you're going to hear that and it doesn't sound like good news. It sounds like burden. It does not sound like blessing. So let's talk about that. I want to deal with kind of two objections. The objection would go something like this. This verse may be true. It's in the Bible, so I guess I have to believe it. But I don't see how it can do anything other than lead me to despair. Apparently, I can't know Jesus if this verse is true. Because one, Jesus' commands are tough. They're way too lofty. They're far too difficult and burdensome. They point us 
And this is good. They point us toward our need for repentance, and that's a good reminder. But basically, we see the commands, it's impossible, and we can't obey them. We can't even imperfectly obey them. And the second is just about us. The commands are tough, and we, we're wretched sinners. Sure, we rejoice in God's grace to forgive our sins, but we don't expect much success in this life fighting them. And so obedience seems like it's off the table. What do we say about that? Convans are too burdensome is the first one, and we're just too sinful is the second one. How can we hear this as blessing, not burden, when those things are out there? As to the first objection, that the commands are burdensome, too difficult, John disagrees, just very clearly. Jesus' commands are not burdensome. We shouldn't say they are. In 1 John 5, 3, John says, and this is as clear as can be, I think, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And what commandments does John have in mind in particular? He tells us in verses 22 and 23. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And as an aside, we have to get comfortable with that language because it occurs over and over again in John. Whatever it means, we need to be able to say it about ourselves. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. That's 1 John 3. Do you believe in the name of God's Son? Do you believe in Jesus? Do you love your brothers and sisters in the church? There's lots more that could be said, but that's how John's summing it up for now, and it's a great place to start. Obey Jesus. Love your brothers and sisters. And John's saying, that's what obedience looks like. Don't misunderstand. Jesus says lots more than that. Jesus does command us to take up our cross, lay down our lives, follow him. There's a lot that sounds awfully burdensome there. But in the end, we'll recognize that what looked like sacrifice is actually blessing and ultimate gain. His commands are good. All of God's commands to us are promises of blessing in disguise. I think that's just such an important principle. God commands us nothing that is bad, nothing that will harm us. All of God's commands to us are promises of blessing in disguise. So let's be clear, as if we needed to be clear on this part, perfect obedience is not possible for us. It's not possible before we've been brought to glory. The only kind of obedience we're going to have this side of the grave is very imperfect, very limited, and tainted with sin. John knows that. But perfect obedience is not what John is talking about. But that doesn't mean that there's no obedience at all. And even once we've made all of the necessary caveats and qualifications, we still hear John's stubbornly blunt words. This is how you know you've known him. 
when you keep his commands. Those who know Jesus keep his commands. How can that be blessing and not burden? So then the second objection, how can we ever hope for even kind of this imperfect partial obedience when we're such wretched sinners? I mean, we know ourselves. As we'll see, the answer is not that we ought to hope more on ourselves, but we ought to look for the work of God in our lives. In the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel promises that a day is coming when God will make a new covenant with his people. And and that's now. So hear these new covenant promises, and remember, that's where we are. So listen for what comes after repentance and forgiveness, kind of the the focus of chapter 1 of 1 John. But hear Ezekiel. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So that's the big, true, good emphasis of chapter 1 that we just had. Forgiveness of sins. But he keeps going. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So first we get a heart transplant. That stony, stubborn, unfeeling, unloving heart is swapped out and he's giving us a new heart that does love, that is not resistant. And then he says, and I will put my spirit, that's God's Holy Spirit, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You have to hear that last part. It's just so important. This is the new covenant promise. When God comes to rescue his people from exile, Ezekiel's saying, he's going to remove their hard hearts, which always made it so impossible for Israel to get off the ground, always made it look like they were just so prone to idolatry. But he's going to give them the new heart, the new, true Israel, and he's going to put his Holy Spirit in them so they will walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. We are going to misunderstand the Christian life if we think that God's blessing stops at forgiveness. If God forgave us but then just left us to continue in our sins, that would be a better-than-nothing gospel. But it would not be the full, good, true gospel. Both forgiveness and now the beginnings of, imperfect though they are, but the beginnings of obedience are also God's gift to us. So how do you hear this? Burden or blessing? There are commands to be obeyed. There are good works to be done. We really ought to hear that as blessing. God's grace doesn't leave us idle. And he doesn't leave us in our sins. The Holy Spirit is enabling our obedience, and we now can hope to obey. Good work, true obedience enlivens us and blesses us as we are a blessing. Obedience ought not be thought of as drudgery. 
gives us purpose and leads to blessing. And I, I suspect most of us have had the experience of physical work that leaves us physically exhausted, but spiritually, emotionally refreshed. And also kind of the, the opposite. We've had times where we've been physically rested, but we find ourselves restless and unfulfilled. I mean, we're going into summertime. And I love summer. It is my favorite season. But that's kind of one of the typical dynamics of summer, especially if you're a school-aged kid and you go from having all of these commitments uh, to now having most of your time unstructured, without a lot of goals. And one of the things that parents hate hearing the most, I know, is, is mom, I'm bored, there's nothing to do. And I'm not criticizing, I, I sympathize. There's a whole wide world out there, but, but when it's without direction, when it's without goal, when you can do anything, sometimes you're paralyzed and you end up doing just nothing. Whatever we say about summer, again, I love it, that's not the picture of the Christian life. It's a blessing. It is a blessing that God has given us good work to do for his glory. And there are so many good things to do that look like obedience. We ought to see obedience in that light. Because God is at work in our lives, we should be so hopeful that he will make us more and more obedient, more and more holy, more and more righteous. We should expect that. that that's not saying, don't be so hard on yourself, expect more from yourself. It is saying, this is the promise of God and expect what God has promised. It's so important that we get that, and I think it's so often misunderstood. At least I have misunderstood that. My fear, because it's been true in my own life, is that so many well-meaning Christians flip things just upside down here. And maybe it's not true of you, but it has been true of me. I'm pretty comfortable, comfortable calling myself a sinner. I mean, maybe it's a little bit embarrassing. Maybe you take a hit to your pride. But basically, I feel comfortable doing that. I mean, there's a lot of evidence, right? I'm really uncomfortable saying that I'm a saint or saying that I'm holy. I think of myself as a sinner by default, a saint by exception. At times, I think I have expected to see sin in my life, but maybe been a little bit happily surprised when I see some goodness some God-honoring righteousness. And that seems safe. Seems safe to think that way. And I think it seems humble. It's just not at all what the Bible says. Where we are fundamentally pessimistic, I fear, and skeptical about our own holiness, the Bible tells us to be hopeful, to expect the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we ought to expect and anticipate increasing righteousness and obedience in our lives. And we ought to find our continuing sin, in many ways, appalling, surprising, in some sense, unnatural. When we call ourselves sinners, we are saying something true, something we shouldn't lose sight of. We, can sin, we continue to sin, 
The fight against sin is a lifelong struggle. We shouldn't be in a position ever, ever, where we think we can come to God proud and boasting. We need 1 John chapter 1. We need to come back to him in repentance daily. And we need to remember that he's gracious to forgive our sins, all our sins. But my guess is it would surprise you to hear that the Bible itself never calls converted believers sinners. I mean, I think it's never. There is one arguable instance that you can argue with me later. I don't think it holds up. I think it's really never, and even if I granted that, it's one. We're called a lot of things. Believers are called beloved. We're called children of God. We're said to be in Christ. We are over and over again called holy. We're called faithful. We're just not called sinners. If you trust in Christ, you're holy, and you should expect to be made holier by the Holy Spirit as you trust him. It would be better to think of ourselves as saints who sin. Why does all of that matter beyond the kind of a semantic point? I think here's why. If we think obedience is impossible, we will not expect it, we will not hope for it, we will not try for it. If we think our sin is inevitable, we may regret it, we may even confess it, but I think we are very unlikely to turn from it. When we call ourselves sinners, that can start as a good, appropriate, godly expression of humility and contrition and recognition of the, the sins that continue to be in our lives. But we ought to be awfully careful that it doesn't end up becoming an excuse. Of course I lie. I'm a sinner. Of course I can't control my internet habits. I'm a sinner. Of course I'm given to uncontrolled anger or gossip or greed or whatever. I'm a sinner. But you're not. Fundamentally, that is not who you are anymore. Christ has purchased you. He's redeemed you. He's forgiven you. You're holy. You should see yourself that way. Recognize your sin. Regularly go to Christ in repentance, but don't be complacent about it. Puritans used to say that we are called to fight sin with a holy violence. I think that's really good. We should fight sin with shrewdness, with strategy, with aggression, seeking all the help we need to fight that sin. And I think that's a big part that we just don't get, that we need to fight sin together. Don't fight sin all alone where you tend to sin. The Holy Spirit is in you. Your sin doesn't need to have mastery over you. Obedience is blessing. It's not burden. 
It's a gift of our gracious God who loves us. It is not a curse. Very briefly, as we see in verse 5, obedience itself is an expression of God's love for us, overflowing from us. We grow in obedience as we experience his love for us, as we grow in love for God and our brothers and sisters. And so I think very practically speaking, that means seek God where he has promised to be found. Seek God in the company of believers, in the fellowship of other believers. Seek him in his word. Come to him in prayer and praise, in gathered worship. And in just a few minutes, come to him hungry. Come to him hungry and ready to be fed. What then does this look like? What does the life look like? Verse 6 says our lives ought to look like Jesus. We walk as he walked. That's another way of saying we follow Jesus, our good shepherd. He calls us. We come. He leads us, yes, through suffering sometimes and promises to bless us still and we come to know him more and more. We're called to imitate Jesus. It's another way of saying, hear the voice of the good shepherd and follow. Hear these words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How do you know you've known him? As you keep his commands and you come to find them not burdensome, but overflowing with blessing. As you hear the voice of the Lord, your shepherd, and you follow him in paths of righteousness. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. I want to now close with a prayer that's adapted from an old Puritan prayer. Let's pray.